Genesis chapter 40. Genesis 40, we're going to look in on Joseph and his experience in an Egyptian prison as described in this chapter. This chapter actually describes the last episode in a series of catastrophes that plagued the first half of Joseph's life. There were these frustrating string of bad things that happened to Joseph without any culpability on his part. And in the chapters leading up to Genesis 40, Joseph has been uh, the victim of a sinister plot by his own brothers to, to kill him out of sheer jealousy. They hated him simply because their, their father seemed to favor him. They resented what they perceived as Joseph's failure to check his privilege and the speed and the ease with which they hatched a plot to destroy him sort of highlights the evil intensity of the hatred that they had for him. In fact, just to give you some context, turn back to chapter 37 of Genesis. And I want to sort of speed through this series of devastating misfortunes that ultimately have brought Joseph into this Egyptian dungeon. One of the things that has always amazed me about the the cruelty of Joseph's brothers is how eagerly they tried to destroy him, many of them, in a plot against him. These were the patriarchs of national Israel. This was the generation of Jacob's offspring who gave their names to the 12 tribes of the Jewish nation. They were brothers in what should have been a close-knit family. But the cruel scheme that ended Joseph's childhood and very nearly ended his life was born hastily in one moment of bitterness. It happened when Joseph's older brothers were pasturing their father's flock in a remote village, and Jacob sent Joseph to, to check on their welfare. Genesis 37 verse 18 says, they saw him from a distance, the brothers saw Joseph from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. In other words, he had just come within view, and, and from the time they saw him coming, before he even came close to them, Scripture says, they had already decided amongst themselves that they were going to put him to death. Shocking, really. Verse 20 of chapter 37, they say, Let us kill him and cast him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. So then they carried out the plot, verse 24. They took him and cast him into the pit. Now, the pit was empty without any water in it. So he's left in this empty pit in the desert to die of exposure and dehydration. And by the way, keep that word pit in mind because it's going to come up again in our chapter. I used to read this, and I, and I thought, what is this hole they threw him into? Is it a, a, an old quarry or a large crater? But that's not what this is. Notice the expression, one of the pits, as if the desert was full of these excavations. But these were not craters or, or deep diggings with wide openings, you know, elephant-sized potholes uh, here and there all over the desert. The Hebrew word that is translated pit actually signifies a well or a cistern. And these were common in the desert. A cistern would be a a large man-made tank or cavity placed underground where water would be stored. And a well, of course, is a, a narrow shaft that goes all the way down to the water table. Now, either one of those would have a very narrow entry hole from which water could be drawn. 
the water table in the desert is pretty far underground usually, so a well in that region would probably be too deep to survive if you got thrown into it. But Scripture says this pit was empty without any water in it. So this is simply a dry cistern, probably an old one that is now out of use. It wasn't uh, as deep or as dangerous as a well, perhaps, but it was deep enough that if you fell in or you got thrown in, you would die of dehydration or heat stroke. This was a place of utter despair. And that is Joseph's first undeserved, life-threatening catastrophe. But then the brothers have second thoughts, motivated, you'd like to think, by their conscience. It seems Reuben had a conscience. He genuinely seemed to be uneasy with the idea of leaving their brother to die. But the other brothers apparently are motivated more by greed than by their own tender consciences, they realize they could make a little money and, and still get rid of Joseph if they just sold him to some slave traders. And so after they dumped Joseph in that pit, they went and sat down together for a meal, which again shows you how hard-hearted they are. Having just left their youngest brother for dead, they sit down to enjoy a meal together, which shows you just the evil darkness of their hearts. And, and then while they're eating, Scripture says... They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, these are international merchants and slave traders with camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh going to Egypt. So, some of the brothers pull Joseph out of the pit and they sell him to these slave traders. For Joseph, this is both a blessing and a second catastrophe because it's a blessing because it means Joseph isn't going to die a slow death in that empty cistern, but it also means that he's now captive to a band of slave traders headed for Egypt, as one commentator says, being lifted out of the pit only to pass into slavery. And this is the last time these brothers ever expect to see Joseph. Servitude and imprisonment will be the story of Joseph's life for the next 13 years. And along the way, he gets some little hints of help and hope and encouragement, but in the end, all of his hopes are always frustrated yet again. At least that's what it seems like from the human perspective. So he's dragged out of this pit. He's literally dragged into Egypt, and the journey to Egypt, you know, was not made in comfort. He was undoubtedly made to walk the whole way, most likely dragged, pulled along through that desert wasteland with a slave trader's rope. It's hard to fathom how much difficulty Joseph was facing. He's still a teenager. And if Joseph were someone prone to easy discouragement, if he considered his cup half empty rather than half full, he might have died of melancholy before he even made it out of Sinai. But at the end of chapter 37, we're told the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now again, this is both a blessing and a catastrophe. It's a blessing because Potiphar is a high-ranking official, and so Joseph will be a slave in a palace. He's not just a menial laborer in the dirt, in the desert, under a burning sun. He will basically serve as an assistant to the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. But still, this is a catastrophic turn of events because he's now enslaved to a man who was involved in one of the most sinister pagan cults ever to dominate a nation, 
that literally had dominance over the whole world. Egypt, you know, was, was the leading empire in the world at the time. It was thoroughly corrupt, and it was in bondage to this cult, lots of pagan cults, but mainly the cult of sun worship. And Potiphar was not only a pagan sun worshiper, he was apparently in a position of great power in the hierarchy of the cult, because the name Potiphar means he who is devoted to the sun, the sun, S-U-N. And, and his name and a high position in the Egyptian ruling class suggest that he is also a high-ranking high, high person in this cult of sun worshipers. And Joseph is now his slave. He is a captive within this pagan overlord's household with no obvious prospect of escape or redemption, no hope. He has no friends. He has no close relatives in Egypt. He doesn't know the language. He has little experience in anything that he's about to be made to do. After all, he's still a teenager, but his heart is surely full of sorrow at not only being cut off from all of his own family and loved ones, but also he knows how hated he is by his own brothers. This, for most people, would be a recipe for absolute despair. But Joseph presses on faithfully. Genesis 39, verse 2, tells us he became a successful man. He prospered. And he gained the respect of his master in an amazing way. Chapter 39, verse 4 says, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and attended on him, and he appointed him, that is, Potiphar appointed Joseph, overseer over his house, and all that he owned he gave into his hand. In other words, he he gave him, like, clerical control over everything he owned. And here's what I want you to bear in mind. Everywhere Joseph goes, he impresses people and they elevate him. This is the dominant theme of Joseph's early life. Despite all of the setbacks he suffered, he prospers on some level no matter where he lands. And you're going to see that again in chapter 40. But nevertheless, you have these little hints of hope and prosperity that nevertheless, ultimately always give way to even greater catastrophe. And that, as you know, is what happened after Joseph gained the respect and the goodwill of Potiphar. Potiphar had a wife with the heart of a lust-filled trollop. And she tried to entice Joseph into an adulterous affair, and when her attempts to corrupt him ultimately failed, she falsely accused him of rape. And so at the end of chapter 39, verse 20, we are told, Joseph's master, that is Potiphar, took him and put him into the jail. So here's another setback, another catastrophe. All Joseph's favor with Potiphar evaporates instantly. He is put in what is undoubtedly the smallest, most secure, most isolated, dankest dungeon in all of Egypt because, as Scripture says, the place where the, this is the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So in other words, if you, if you offended Pharaoh, this is where you landed. It was the most secure and awful of all the prisons. And yet, before chapter 39 even closes, you have another hint of hope and encouragement. And remember, I said, this is the theme of Joseph's early life. He always prospers on some level, no matter where he lands. And in this case... He impresses the jailer with the same skill and integrity and trustworthiness that had originally impressed Potiphar. And now Joseph makes a favorable impression on this man who is probably 
Potiphar's next in command, or at least he's the very next level down in the hierarchy. He is the guy in charge of the jail. And verse 22 of chapter 39, Moses tells us, the chief jailer gave into the hand of Joseph all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. Now, we pick it up at the start of our chapter, chapter 40. And I'm going to read through the text this morning a few verses at a time. We'll get through this whole chapter, but I want to read a few verses at a time rather than reading the whole chapter all at once. And then uh, I want to trace the, the logic of this narrative with you. And at the end, I have some lessons that I want to draw from this chapter and point out to you. So Genesis 40 starts with two high-ranking prisoners being thrown into the same dungeon where Joseph was being held. Verse 1. Now it happened that after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard appointed Joseph as overseer over them, and he attended to them, and they were in confinement for some time. Now, the King James Version refers to the cupbearer as Pharaoh's butler. And that's why, if you read commentaries on this chapter, so many of them keep speaking of him as the butler, but the Hebrew word that describes his office actually refers to drink or a drinking vessel, And so while this guy may have actually fulfilled some of the duties that we associate with butlering, his chief responsibility was to guard and deliver the cup to the king so that it would ensure that no one else, no one had the opportunity to poison Pharaoh or otherwise tamper with his wine. And so the cupbearer would also maintain and verify the the quality of everything that was in the king's wine cellar. So this is a weighty responsibility, and it was given only to the most trustworthy person. This was a position of high honor and reserved for someone with the utmost integrity. And the cupbearer's duties obviously, no doubt, put him in close contact with other workers in in Pharaoh's kitchen. And in this case, it's the baker. And now notice, both of these men are at the very top of their respective crafts. They are called, verse 2, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So no one in, in the realm of these vocations had higher rank than these two guys. And the role of chief baker had huge significance. This guy was not just a kitchen worker who stayed in the back room and had no personal contact with Pharaoh. The baker's role was an important one, and his duties far transcended the preparation of bread and cakes for Pharaoh's meals. Because bread and baked goods it had a powerful religious significant significance in ancient Egypt, archaeologists, you know, have and keep excavating ancient Egyptian tombs. There have been literally thousands of them, and they are always stocked with baked goods. Fresh baked things would be regularly taken into the tombs of high-ranking but dead Egyptians, and in fact. I read this in a book on ancient Egyptian funeral protocol. Ask me why I was reading that book. (laughs) But it says this. 
To ensure the happiness of the deceased, there was a constant flow of offering into the temples and mortuary priesthoods, pastries, cakes, and fruit breads. One list of these temple offerings includes over 20 kinds of baked goods, and the Harris Papyrus, that's a famous ancient document that was uncovered, it gives at least 30 different kinds of baked goods. So the chief baker's duties had profound religious overtone in the Egyptian style of paganism. He's like the high priest of the bakery. And somehow, these two high-ranking officials had fallen under Pharaoh's displeasure. The text says they offended their lord, the king of Egypt, and, and Pharaoh was furious. And it's unlikely that whatever they did was trivial. The Hebrew term for offended there in verse 1 has the connotation of guilt, and it also speaks of sin. So whatever they were accused of was almost certainly a, a deliberate transgression of some kind, and, and most likely it was a very serious crime, because as you're going to see later in the chapter, the baker pays for this as if it's a capital crime. He's put to death because of it. Now, perhaps there was some evidence of an attempt or, or possibly a conspiracy to poison Pharaoh's wine, and these two were the chief suspects. It was most likely something very serious like that because they're cast into Pharaoh's private dungeon with Joseph, who, remember, Joseph has been accused and falsely convicted of raping a high official's wife. So this prison is certainly no place of ease and recreation. This is not the Egyptian equivalent of those hotel-style European penitentiaries for white-collar criminals that you read about occasionally. This is, this is just a dank dungeon, and the prisoners are kept in chains or manacles, and that includes Joseph. When you read that he was put in charge of the other prisoners, don't imagine that they relieved him of his chains. He is, he's now something of a trustee in this prison, but he is still in chains, We know that for two reasons. One, the last word in verse 3, imprisoned in our translation, is a Hebrew word that means bound, and it specifically speaks of being bound with cords or chains. And then, reason number two, even more, that we can be certain Joseph was being held with chains. Psalm 105 mentions this part of Joseph's life and talks about his time in prison. And it says, Psalm 105, verse 18, they afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in chains. So his feet are manacled. This is a dismal existence for all of these men, including Joseph. And although he's gained the trust of the jailer and he's been given a measure of responsibility, he hasn't been given any freedom. And so he's now given a new duty, not by the jailer this time, but notice verse 4, if you're reading this attentively, you'll see he's given this new duty by the captain of the bodyguard. You know who that is? That's Potiphar. I have always suspected that Potiphar, who surely knew his wife's character, probably believed in Joseph's innocence, or at least he doubted his guilt, because here he demonstrates his trust in Joseph's integrity one more time. And these two disgraced officials are now put in Joseph's care. And his task, by the way, is not to guard them, but to serve them. He brings their meals and he runs errands on behalf of the jailer. Whenever these two fallen bigwigs have any need, he has to wait on them. As it says in verse 39, 22, whatever was done there, 
Joseph was the one who did it, but it doesn't mean he was the one in charge. He was the gopher for the one who was in charge. He's a slave. But still, he's in a position of trust and some small measure maybe of privilege. He's the one trustee under the jailer's oversight that serves these two guys, but he's still a prisoner and a slave. Verse 5. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. Now Joseph came to them in the morning and saw them, and behold, they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, saying, Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Now, here you get a glimpse of why Joseph always earned a good reputation. He notices or somehow senses that the baker and the cupbearer are out of sorts on this particular morning, which tells you he was observant, he was attentive, he was diligent in his duties, he's eager to be helpful, and he's unusually optimistic, you know? People like that usually do gain the trust of others. But his optimism, you have to smile, don't you, when he says, why are your faces so sad today? I mean, think about it. These two guys had incurred the displeasure of the most powerful man in the world. They had lost their livelihoods and their reputations. They lost their freedom. They were in the closest thing to solitary confinement without literally being locked up alone, so they're cut off from any friends or loved ones that they ever had. And as subsequent events suggest, they had been accused of some high crime that carried the possibility of execution. And so... Joseph's question, why are your faces so sad today? It tells us that Joseph is an inveterate optimist. He's definitely a a glass-half-full kind of guy. And it turns out that each of these two men had been visited in the night with a dream so vivid that they were convinced their dreams had some significance. And since they were pagans living in a pagan culture, it seems certain that this, this notion that their dreams meant something actually starts with a superstitious belief. It's a matter of record that Egyptians in general saw great significance in the mystical meanings that they supposed were embedded in their dreams. And in Egypt, and, and not only Egypt, in fact, actually all the nations surrounding Israel, the interpretation of dreams was an important part of all of the pagan belief systems that all of the surrounding cultures had people, uh, soothsayers, who did nothing but interpret dreams. This was common. It was a superstition, I think, comparable to what we see today in astrology and palm reading, or the people who use the newspaper's horoscope to tell them how to live their lives. Now, understand, this chapter is not giving us a stamp of approval on the interpretation of dreams. In all of Scripture, there are only two places where a godly believer interprets a dream for someone else. Only two places. Joseph is about to do it here in our chapter. Daniel does it in the book of Daniel. But no other Israelite ever served righteously as an interpreter of dreams. And it's significant, I think, that both Daniel and Joseph were exiled in foreign lands when they were called upon to interpret dreams for powerful pagan people. And both of them, in the providence of God, ended up 
serving in high positions under pagan rulers. So God, in his providence, used a pagan superstition to convey his truth and accomplish his purposes. That's what's happening here. These are extraordinary and exceptional. Dreams are not the customary way, ways that God communicates with his people. And particularly, dreams that need an interpretation from someone else. There are, of course, a handful of instances in Scripture where God did communicate truth directly to people through dreams, but the distinctive of all of those revelatory dreams from God to his people is that when God gives you a revelatory dream, it doesn't need an interpretation. When God communicates to his people, he speaks with clarity, and he rarely speaks through a dream. Only on a few occasions did he ever do that. Now, Joseph, as a young man, had been a recipient of two dreams with absolutely clear meaning. And in fact, telling those dreams to his brothers was a major factor in helping stir their resentment and jealousy in the first place because they understood immediately what Joseph's dreams meant. There's nothing mysterious about a dream when God gives a a revelatory dream. Its meaning is clear. And by the way, it seems odd and out of character for a sensitive and empathetic soul like Joseph, even to share his private dreams with his brothers and, and, and not foresee that they would react with resentment. It's, not, it's unlike Joseph, but he was a very young man at the time. Joseph usually, as he grows older, displays unusual compassion and care when it comes to the feelings of other people. And you see that here when he notices that these two dignitaries who are imprisoned with him are dejected and downcast and distraught. Again, these are men who had lost lucrative positions of favor and influence. They were exiled to this dungeon that was reserved for people who had personally offended Pharaoh. It seems unlikely that Joseph had ever seen these two guys in a jovial or smiling mood, right? But on this day, he notices something in their countenance that signals an even deeper level of worry and frustration, consternation, sadness, alarm, whatever it was. He kindly asks them, what's wrong? And they say, we've had a dream, meaning each one of them had had dreams, different dreams, vivid dreams, each dream distinctive to the the man who dreamed it, his occupation. They had evidently already talked about this between themselves because they were aware that they had both had this experience, and the fact that both of them had such clear, apparently meaningful dreams at the same time seemed to intensify their distress. It's a notable pattern, by the way, that all of the dreams in the story of Joseph come in pairs. Joseph, as a youth, had double dreams. Genesis 37, verse 5, Joseph had a dream. Then four verses later, he had still another dream, two dreams. And then although Joseph's dreams are loaded with symbols, as I said, they don't require interpretation. Both dreams clearly signified the same thing, namely that Joseph would one day rule and his own brothers would bow down to him. And those are his two dreams. Then you have the two dreams on the same night with the cupbearer and the baker. And then finally, Pharaoh is going to have a pair of dreams in Genesis 41, our next chapter. In fact, Genesis 41, verse 1 starts, Pharaoh had a dream. And then verse 5, he again fell asleep and dreamed a second time. So these dreams in Genesis come in pairs. 
And here in chapter 40, the fact that two men had both memorable and clearly symbolic dreams on the very same night, this to them had ominous overtones. They wanted their dreams interpreted. And so we pick up the narrative at verse 9. And I'll read a much longer section this time because it gives us both dreams and their interpretations. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer recounted his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. I'll pause there and say this. So this is is good news, and the guy breathes a sigh of relief. He's hoping that Joseph is correct. And notice Joseph's request. He's so certain that it's correct not because he figured out some mystery in the dream by sheer intellectual skill, but this is a prophetic revelation to Joseph. God gave this truth to him. And so Joseph says, verse 14, only remember me when it goes well with you, and please show me loving kindness by remembering me to Pharaoh and getting me out of this house. For I was, in fact, stolen from the land of the Hebrews And even here, I have done nothing that should have put me into the pit. Now, two things to notice here. First, there's that word pit. It's the same word that is used in chapter 37 to describe that empty desert cistern Joseph's brothers threw him into. And it gives you an idea of the feeling he had in this dungeon. It was a pit. This was a place where you die slowly. And second, notice, this is really curious. He says he was stolen from his homeland. And strictly speaking, that's true on a certain level. His own brothers kidnapped him. They stole him. But they also sold him into slavery. So why does he tell these fallen dignitaries that he was stolen? I think I know why. I think even here in this dank pit of a prison, with every reason For Joseph to be seething with resentment and and wishing for revenge against his brothers, he's not doing that. He wants to be reconciled to them. And so he describes what happened to him in a way that uh, is clearly designed to preserve the dignity of his own brothers. He leaves them out of the story. As he described what happened to him, he does not implicate his brothers at all. And you'll see that very same generous spirit even more clearly when Joseph finally meets up with his brothers again. We won't get there this morning, but you know the story. So do not think that that generosity towards his brothers is a a characteristic that came to Joseph late in his life when his brothers finally got there. Even here in this prison, he is showing a spirit of forgiveness and mercy to his brothers. Verse 16, and the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably. So he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head, and in the top basket there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. 
The three baskets are three days. So far, so good. This is the same kind of interpretation the other guy got. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. It's the same expression even. But listen to the rest of it. Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. So the cupbearer will be set free and restored to his position and the baker is going to be hanged. And I love that he uses the same expression to describe the future of both men. Pharaoh will lift up your head. Because for the cupbearer, this means elevation to his former position. For the baker, it means elevation by a rope. Now, maybe Pharaoh had investigated and found that the baker alone was guilty of whatever this crime was. Or, or maybe he's just being arbitrary. He decides to set one free and capriciously kill the other one. But what is important here is that Joseph's prophecy came to pass precisely as he predicted, verse 20. Thus it happened on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. So, Joseph here establishes himself not only as a trustworthy man, but as a blessed man with unique gifts and skills that any Egyptian would covet. And it intrigues me that the the pharaohs celebrated their birthdays with a feast. We do that too, kind of, but the custom here is for Pharaoh to give the gifts. He, He grants clemency and he demonstrates his power rather than receiving gifts from other people. And in this case, he showed clemency and compassion to the cupbearer, but he also demonstrated his power by ordering the immediate execution of the baker. And yet again, as so often in Joseph's life up to this point, a ray of hope turns to disappointment. And the chapter ends with this single verse statement that seems to deflate all of the happiness out of this narrative. Verse 23, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Whether he forgot him purposely and maliciously or just negligently, it's not clear to us, but Joseph is left alone again. His progress is halted. Every prospect of release from his predicament is gone. He seems to be literally now in a worse place than he was when the chapter started, because now he's all alone. Except that we know, don't we, that this long narrative, this disaster-filled story of Joseph's life is going to have a happy, even a a tear-jerking ending. And you know what? I think Joseph himself knew that. He anticipated it. He expected it. He still hoped for it and awaited it despite this string of setbacks and, and disasters that he had endured because... He had a promise from God that came to him in the form of those two dramatic revelatory dreams, and he believed that he who promised is faithful. And although we know Joseph must have been disappointed by all these setbacks, notice there is never a single word of disappointment or bitterness or depression or resentment towards God in anything he ever says or does. And in fact, remember what I said earlier, despite all the setbacks he suffered, Joseph prospers on some level no matter where he lands. 
And that is the motif that runs through his early life. How can someone who is so abused remain so confident and positive? I see in our text three reasons why Joseph always succeeded despite whatever setbacks he suffered. And you can write these down if you want to. Here's my outline. Three reasons for Joseph's positive attitude and his tenacity in the midst of these ruthless trials. Reason number one, he had Yahweh's presence. God was with him. Scripture says that repeatedly. And in fact, this is truly reason number one and the anchoring reason in all the factors that explain Joseph's prosperity in the midst of suffering. God was with him. That's a theme in Scripture almost every time Joseph is mentioned. It starts as soon as Joseph arrives in Egypt, Genesis 39, verse 2, Yahweh was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Three verses later, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph, thus the blessing of Yahweh was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. And then 17 verses after that, when Joseph is cast into the dungeon, Genesis 39, 21, but... Yahweh was with Joseph and extended loving kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the jailer. Two verses after that, Yahweh was with him, and whatever he did, Yahweh made to succeed. And even in the New Testament, you know, just before Stephen is stoned in Acts 7, Stephen is recounting a lengthy outline of Old Testament history, and in Acts 7, verses 9 and 10, this is what he says about Joseph. Yet God was with him. And rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh. Spurgeon said that's actually the whole biography of Joseph sketched by inspiration in a single sentence of just four words God was with him. And Spurgeon noted the irony of Joseph's early life alongside Genesis 39, verse 2, which tells us Yahweh was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Spurgeon said about that. Externally, it did not always appear that God was with him, for he did not always seem to be a prosperous man. But when you come to look into the inmost soul of this servant of God, you see his true likeness. He lived in communion with the Most High, and God blessed him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And that, of course, is the primary factor that made Joseph what he was. He wasn't prosperous merely because of some innate skill or charm. He obviously was a capable man, but when you look at all the twists and turns in his life, you have to realize that some greater mind is moving this narrative forward. More on that in a moment. But it's a fact of Scripture and and a fact of absolute truth that no one ever prospers without the Lord's say-so and blessing. You could never accomplish anything that is truly good without the Lord, without his enablement and his sanction. Psalm 127 verse 1 says that expressly. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And In Joseph's case, you see that the polar opposite is also true. Because God was with him, nothing his adversaries could ever do to him really threatened to undermine his faith or finally destroy him. It wouldn't overthrow his optimism. It wouldn't ruin his hope. It wouldn't even erase his love for his brothers. All of that remained intact no matter what catastrophe fell on Joseph. 
And that's why I think of all the promises in Scripture, all the promises you read throughout the Bible, there is not a single promise more precious than the promise of God's presence. It's a promise that is given repeatedly in many ways to every believer. This, this promise is actually embedded in the very name of the Savior, Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. Jesus' parting words in, in Matthew 28, 20 were, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Hebrews 13, 5, it says, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Psalm 46, verse 7, Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And this was the promise, I think we looked at this not long ago, the promise God made to Joshua right after the death of Moses, Joshua 1.5, just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And then four verses later, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be in dread or dismayed for Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. And the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 23, verse 4, points to this same truth. The psalmist says to God, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. That's a promise and a principle every Christian can live by. If we remained aware of the Lord's presence, it would keep us from sinning. It would lift our spirits when we're downcast. It would see us through any trial or difficulty life could ever throw at us. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, God says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, because I'm with you, God says. In fact, that verse was made into a stanza in one of our best-known hymns, How Firm a Foundation. And for Joseph, this must have been a conscious thought continually in his mind, that God was always with him. And that's why he persevered. That's why there is never any disqualifying sin or major character flaw in all of the biblical record about Joseph. It's why he never shows any signs of discouragement. Even while he's being subjected to every kind of misery and affliction, he knows God is with him, and that keeps him steady. And furthermore, Joseph is never leaning on the arm of flesh. Despite his brother's resentment when he told him those dreams, there is zero evidence that Joseph ever placed any trust in his own native skills or talents. You know, he wasn't thinking, what a great man I am. He was thinking, what a great God I have. He knew to give all of the credit and all of the glory to the Lord for everything good that ever came into his life And you see that in our text. And in fact, this brings up the second reason I believe Joseph's attitude and life are exemplary. Reason number one, he had Yahweh's presence. Reason number two, he acknowledged Yahweh's perfection. He knew full well that all glory, all the time, always goes to God. And you'll see that in his answer to these two high-powered prisoners. You know, they're looking for a high-powered dream interpreter, Genesis 40, verse 8, but there's no one to interpret. And Joseph's reply, also in verse 8, he doesn't step up and say, well, I can do it. He says, do not all interpretations belong to God? He gives God the glory. He knew that all true glory, glory belongs to God, and he reveres God because he's aware of and he appreciates and acknowledges 
the absolute perfection of Yahweh, his omniscience and his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his wisdom, his goodness, and all the other aspects of the divine perfection. You know, we we refer to those as divine attributes, and that's okay. But understand, the attributes of God are not a list that we put together in order to construct the character of God. God is not composed of parts. What we call the attributes of God are simply different aspects of that singular, holy, transcendent perfection that God is. In short, He alone is glorious and therefore All glory belongs to him by definition. And Joseph understood that with surprising clarity for someone who had been deprived of home and family and education, never exposed to the Greek philosophers. He came up with this from Scripture alone and from what he knew about God alone. And therefore, when the cupbearer and the baker complained that there is no one to interpret their dreams, Joseph immediately responds with an answer that recognizes God's singular glory. There is no one like God. He alone can explain what otherwise cannot be explained. Do not interpretations belong to God? Why why would you look for anyone other than Yahweh himself to untangle the meaning of a mystery? And Joseph's answer is a subtler statement of the same message we're given by Isaiah in Isaiah 8.19. Now, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists and who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And Joseph gets that. So he gives glory to God even in the pit. And he's also making it clear that he, Joseph, doesn't possess the skill of interpreting dreams. He's not going to claim honor even if he can tell them the meaning of their dreams, but he knows that God is with him and that God can easily decipher what seems indecipherable to human minds. And so he says, recount your dreams to me, please. And in the simplest, most honestly straightforward way possible, he tells each of these two men the true meaning of their dreams. Now, I need to stress this again. This this kind of revelation by dream or, or messaging by, by dream is very rare, even in Scripture. This is not a, me, a means by which God routinely communicates with his people. And in fact, I would classify this incident as more of a divinely orchestrated providence, an act of providence where God is actually using an Egyptian superstition to make his point. Because nowhere does... Scripture ever encouraged the people of God to look for meaning in their own dreams. Don't do that. There's nothing certain about it. In fact, Peter says we're given a more sure prophetic word in the form of Scripture. Peter says, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your, in your hearts. He's talking about Scripture. He says it's more sure than any other form of revelation. And he's saying that between now and the coming of Christ you have no more clear and certain message from God, and you should look for no other message from God than you have in the inspired scriptures that more sure prophetic word. People who seek God's guidance privately through dreams and voices in their heads always go astray spiritually. So don't do that. And and once more, those few extremely rare places where God did speak directly to people in dreams. 
The message was always utterly unmistakable. There was no mystery to untangle. There is no message, secret message to decode. Looking for secret messages in dreams is an occult practice that is specifically forbidden by Scripture. Jeremiah 29, verses 8 and 9, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to your dreams which you dream. For they prophesy a lie to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. So he puts the dreams we dream in the same category as false prophecies, if that's where you're looking for for truth. Now, God does, however, for his own wise and holy purposes, sometimes use even delusions and false beliefs, including the superstitions of pagans, in the outworking of his providence. This, I believe, was the case with the Magi at Jesus' birth. These were mystical wise men and astrologers who adhered apparently to the Zoroastrian religion, and God employed their superstition about the power of heavenly bodies along with a star that God personally moved to draw these men to Bethlehem in order to honor the infant Christ. Joseph seemed to have an advanced understanding of how God works through providence, and that, I believe, is the third factor that we see in Genesis 40 that explains how his faith and hope and love all survived intact despite all the adversity he suffered. First, he he had Yahweh's presence. Second, he acknowledged Yahweh's perfection. Now, third and finally, he understood Yahweh's providence. Somehow he understood, even though he didn't have Romans 8, 28, he understood that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He had seen God's purpose in two dreams when he was still a boy, and he clung to that hope in all of his adversity. He was called according to God's purpose, and he knew that for people who are, all things work together for good. As it says, of all the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, he endured as seeing him who is unseen. He saw the hand of God in everything that happened to him. And we know he did because when you get to the end of the biblical narrative about Joseph, he utters that famous line, Genesis 50, verse 20, and spoiler alert here, but you need to read to the end of this story, though we're not going to get there today. He tells his brothers, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, he's acknowledging that God intended this. This was the will of God, and he had a good purpose in it, even though his own brother's purpose was not so good. And in fact, long before he ever said that in Genesis 50, 20, he had already told his brothers, Genesis 45, verse 5, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God meant it for good. That's not a truth Joseph discovered after he saw how much good came out of his suffering. He knew while he was suffering that God would use it for good. His faith was implicit. It was absolute. It was unquestioning. You don't see Joseph complaining about how life is unfair or you don't see him questioning God even the way Job did. And Job wasn't a bad guy. Scripture says he was the most righteous man on earth. But Joseph seems to have an even higher understanding about the goodness of God. His faith is not the kind that is swayed by circumstances. Think about this. Joseph, uh, in Genesis 37, verse 2, it says Joseph was 17 years old 
when his brothers sold him into slavery. And according to Genesis 41, verse 46, he is 30 years old when he's finally released for the last time from that Egyptian dungeon. So he maintained all of that positivity and hope through 13 years of pit-dwelling and disappointment. It's amazing. Through all that time, he saw beyond his circumstances, and he watched the hand of God, and he knew that no matter what happened, God had a good purpose in it. And that's how he thrived, even in prison. And in the next chapter, you'll see the beginning of the end of Joseph's troubles, when again, he's called upon to, to interpret a pair of dreams, this time for Pharaoh himself, and then every bad thing that has ever happened to him up to this point suddenly makes perfect sense because God did have a purpose to use Joseph to save many people alive, to keep many people alive. Lots of commentators have pointed out a long list of similarities between Joseph and Christ, and I think there's a true sense in which he's a kind of foreshadowing of Christ Even though Scripture doesn't directly draw that comparison, I think you can see it. He was betrayed by his brethren. He was sold for a few pieces of silver. He was left to die. He was raised from the pit. He was numbered with the transgressors, and you could go on. I think somewhere J. Vernon McGee had a list of like 50 similarities between Joseph and Jesus like that. And all of those comparisons remind us of the wise and ordered way God has written the grand story of redemption. Sometimes you see these hints and pictures and foreshadowings in imagery, like, like the reverse, these are like reverse echoes of gospel truth, things that happen before the truth is finally and fully declared. And in that sense, Joseph does clearly point us forward to Christ, who voluntarily humbled himself to an even greater degree than Joseph's humbling. Christ willingly suffered infinitely more than Joseph ever suffered, and he did it to keep many people alive by paying the price of their sin and by imputing to them his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the simple truth to which all Scripture points. Christ is the sure and steady anchor, as we sang earlier today. But Christ suffered infinitely more than Joseph ever suffered because what Christ suffered was the full outpouring of God's wrath against sin. Though he himself was holy and innocent and undefiled, like Joseph, didn't deserve the things that happened to him. Nevertheless, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. In other words, Christ bore an infinite measure of agony and punishment in the place of sinners who deserve it, so that we who believe might be covered with his perfect righteousness and given the gift of eternal life. That, again, that is the gospel. God gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I hope you can see how the story of Joseph paints a picture of the goodness and mercy of our God, who makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. And I hope that if you have never truly loved him, you'll be drawn today by the power of his word to love him and trust him alone for salvation. Because as Jesus says in John 6:40, this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus says, I myself will raise him up on the last day.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace and the goodness that takes all of our sufferings and all of life's disappointments, even our sin, and you make it all work together for our good and your glory. Even when people do evil things for evil purposes, you have a plan to bring about something good. We can't always see what you're weaving from the underside of the tapestry, but we know that you make everything beautiful in its time. Give us faith to trust. Give us patience to wait until your perfect will becomes clear to us. That is the very soul of true faith, to endure as if we could see that which is unseen. Hold us fast and anchor our hearts in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.